Hey, thanks for listening to the Bellevue Christian Church podcast. We're a church in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, where ordinary people are learning to live everyday life like Jesus. We believe that one way to learn that life is by engaging with an ancient but active collection of books called the Bible every single week. If this teaching leaves you with a question about the content or a story of what God is doing in your life, please send a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church because we'd love to hear from you. What is the gospel? I was, uh, I was asked that question by a professor of mine. At, uh, I went to a Christian university, um, and I was asked by that by a professor of mine in one of my last classes in, one of, in my final semester at Lincoln Christian University, where I attended. It's a Bible college or a Christian college where many of the people there were intending to go into ministry or to work in a church, or in my case, I was an intercultural studies major, so my one goal in life was to work anywhere in the world but Bellevue, um, and here I am. <laughs> um, I did not use my degree in that way, uh, but one of the things that we did in our, our last class, we had a professor named Rob, and he, he, uh, he usually went after us, and he had some of the, some of the harder questions for us, and he, he graded our papers the hardest, his classes were the hardest, and in the opening day, in the opening moments of our class, with our final class, kind of our capstone class with him, he asked this question, what's the gospel? And before we could answer, he said, why don't you just take a minute, I want you to get into groups of three or four, and again, this is a Christian college, this isn't Pitt, so, but the Christian college, and he said, get into groups of three and four, and I want you to come back to me with an answer, what's the gospel, what's the good news of Jesus? And so we went into our, our little groups, and this was the year, by the way, you know, last, last, uh, last Sunday I talked, told a story of my senior year of college where we were all about praying for our unbelieving family and friends, sharing the gospel, I had this new evangelistic hustle, if anybody knew the answer to this question, it was me, I was ready, and so our group, and I'm t- like, a D personality. So like I took over the group. I, we wrote something down. We wrote down all the scriptures that we thought we could support it. And then we got to the point where after a minute, a minute or two had passed and we had an opportunity to share our answers. And you know, again, I'm a D personality. So I went first. I said, here, let me just go for it. So I stood up. I shared what I believe to be the gospel very passionately. Um, and then when I finished, he's like, you know what? That was a good try. That was a good try. Um, well, I'm going to move on. Uh, let's try somebody else. You seemed you missed it a little bit. I'm unconvinced. Now, if you're like an A student and a firstborn, that's like the worst thing you could hear. Um, I, when you build your self-worth off of getting good grades and affirmation, uh, tell, being told that you missed it is hard. And so he moved on to the next group, and they, they gave their best shot at what the gospel is, and they got up and they tried to say it, and the same response. You know what, you guys, you guys are kind of missing it. It's unconvincing. Let's move on, and let's see what somebody else has to say. Went on to the third group, same question, what's the gospel? They got up, they shared their best answer, and he said, you know what, I'm just not convinced. Why don't you guys go back this week and try to find a, you know, a better answer to this question? So we uh, didn't think about it for a week, and we came back the next week uh, for class, and we try again to answer the question, what is the gospel? Same thing, groups of three or four, same reply. You guys are missing it. I'm unconvinced what's going on here. You guys have been in this school for how long? You want to go do what again? And you, you can't give me a clear answer on this. And he said, come back next week and try it again. And we did this for three or four weeks, and then eventually just stopped asking the question. And it was an extremely frustrating experience for me. In fact, I wrote him a letter years later about how frustrating that experience was. But also, what it, what it did for me is it left me with this haunting question in my life, what is the gospel? Every single time I open the Bible, I'm often haunted by this question, what's the gospel? My first couple years in ministry, I was constantly asking this question, what's the gospel? What's the good news? When I prepare to preach, I'm haunted by that question again, what's the gospel? What is this good news? What are we basing our lives off of as Christians? And I want you now to consider that question for yourself. How would you answer that question? What is the gospel? 
If you've been around me for six years, you know this is one of my, or the past six years in ministry, you know this is one of my favorite questions to ask people. What is the gospel? And you'd be amazed at how often, even as Christians, we stumble over an answer to this question. But I want you to do now, though, is I'm going to give you 60 seconds. Josh is going to turn on some music sponsored by Giant Lion, and you guys are going to try to answer that question in either your phone or on a piece of pen and paper. I want you to take 60 seconds. At the end, you're going to grade yourself. We're not going to pass, pass them back and forth and grade each other's, but at the end of the sermon, you'll get an opportunity to grade yourself. And also, don't look it up on Wikipedia. Somebody tried that last time. Just, uh, just answer it as best as you can over the next 60 seconds. Piece of paper on your phone. Go. You can write, I don't know. No discussions over there, Nick and Marsha. No discussions. Your own answers. Your own answers. You can't write Jesus. You got to write a little bit more. Got 30 seconds left, and then your chances are over. Ten more seconds. Perfect fade, Josh. Perfect fade. Well done. Okay. Um, I want you guys just to hold on to that. Like I said, this is just for you. And at the end of the sermon, there'll be an opportunity to see how you did. Um, You can grade yourself. And for now, I'm not going to tell you the answer, though. But we're going to kind of keep that question haunting us in the back of our mind throughout this sermon. This week, we're into week three of a a sermon series called Spirit-Filled Church. And what we're doing in this series is we're exploring 12 marks of what life in the early church was like. When the Spirit of God, the power and presence of God, filled the first Christians, there was 120 believers. When he filled the first Christians, what were the kinds of things you saw this church that was filled with the Spirit doing? And the reason we're doing this is we're asking, is this the kind of things you see happening in our own church? Can we see those 12 marks that we see in the earliest churches when they were filled with the Spirit? And do we see the same marks in our own church? Do we see the same kinds of things happening? And so last week, we started with really the first mark, the one that sets the stage for everything else, which is that the early church was a praying church. But this week, we're going to go on to the second, which is this, is that a Spirit-filled church is a gospel-centered church. So if you have your Bibles this morning, why don't you open up to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're going to actually go through most of the chapter today. So I encourage you if you have a Bible to open it. If you don't have a Bible, get online. BibleGateway.com will give you access to a Bible, or you can download an app called YouVersion. Acts comes after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four accounts about Jesus' life. And Acts is an account that we're going to be kind of unpacking throughout this series, the first nine chapters or so of the earliest church and what life was like for them as they were getting started. We're going to start with Acts 2, 5 through 13, and we'll read the other portions as we go. So this is immediately after, by the way, Acts 2, 1 through 4, where the Spirit of God fills the church, and there's this intense experience where there's people start speaking in other languages as the Spirit enables them, and then this is what happens next. It says, Now that we're staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, that is the sound that was coming from the house, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians 
and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Let's pray. Jesus, we know that you meet us here, that the same spirit that filled the early church fills us now. Lord, we know that this, this scripture that we read was inspired under the guidance of your Holy Spirit, and that as we read the word of God, you, Jesus, you meet us. You confront us. You challenge us. You comfort us. No matter where we're coming from this morning, Lord, you meet us. Whether this is our first time in church or maybe it's our first time in church in years, you have something for us this morning. Whether we've been coming to church our whole life or we're a growing Christian, you have something for us this morning. So Lord God, I pray that as we dive into Acts 2 that you would speak to us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So in Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4, again, the church was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what it's described as. And it was a pretty amazing, powerful, audio-visual, immersive experience as they, they first, you know, there was, this, there was this loud sound like a rushing wind. There was, this, there was an intense visual of fire and a tongue of fire sitting on everyone's heads. And then there's an immediate aftermath in the life of the church as they began speaking, it says, in other languages or tongues that were known languages as the Spirit enabled them, at least in this case. And so the Spirit was an enabling them to speak in all these different languages. And we learn from chapter 2, verse 1, that it's the season of Pentecost. And because it's this festival of Pentecost, people are coming from all over the world back to Jerusalem because Jews had been spread out all over the world due to exile and just, you know, getting new jobs and whatever. So people are being moved all over the world, but they've come back to Jerusalem. Many have come back for Pentecost. And we see this. It says, now that we're staying in Jerusalem at this time, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. We know that it's not literally every nation, but we know it's many nations. It's a way of talking about the whole known world at the time. And it lists out where people are coming from, that there are people from all these different nations and countries and tribes and places that have come now back to Jerusalem. And essentially, they're there for this season or this festival of Pentecost. It's a little bit more than a county fair. It's a pretty big festival. People are taking family vacations there. I often imagine dads there in cargo shorts trying to remember their high school Hebrew. I remember, I think of moms trying to take pictures of their kids on the Temple Mount. I think of kids wearing King David t-shirts. Like that's what's going on. It's a crazy time. It's a festival atmosphere. Everybody's here for this festival of Pentecost. Um, and then something happens that catches everybody off guard. And so you have people from all over the world speaking different languages. Their whole family is there for this festival. And then we find out though that people are hearing, that these disciples are hearing the sound of their own language. It says, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. If you've ever been in a different country and you've heard, you know, where, where everybody's speaking a different language than you, and then suddenly you hear somebody speak English, you're like, I don't care who you are, we just became friends. You have this sudden, like, your ears are, like, open to hear somebody. When I was living in Japan and I heard somebody speak English, I was like, you and me, let's hang out. I don't care what we do, let's go to Starbucks, we're just, we just became friends. And that's, like, what's going on here is you're like, the only people around you who speak your language are your family and the people you brought, and then suddenly you hear somebody else shouting in your language in this place where nobody else really speaks your language. And it's not just anybody. It says this, utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? 
The important things to realize about Galileans is that they were the most yinzer of Israelites. Galileans were like the ultimate, like born and bred, lived in this place their whole life. They, they're, you know, they're uncultured. Not that Pittsburghers are uncultured, but they were uncultured. You know, they, they weren't the kinds that went to college to study like 18th century French poetry and were fluent in second languages. They were the kinds that spoke their language that other Israelites had a hard time understanding. But here they are all of a sudden speaking fluently in all these different languages of all these people that have come from all over the world to Jerusalem. I imagine sometimes, like, if you've ever seen the show Swamp People, I don't watch that. It's a moral reason. My parents do, though. Um, and they, they watch the show Swamp People, and they're speaking, uh, you know, uh, it's hard to understand their dialect. But if you like them suddenly speaking fluent Spanish, that's what you have with these Galileans, suddenly speaking these languages that people can understand. But the question is, what are they speaking? What are they talking about? And again, we know that they aren't just asking, donde esta la biblioteca? They have things on their mind that they want to get across in these other languages that the Spirit is announcing. And it says this, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? And so the things that they're shouting in this language is not just asking for directions, but they're proclaiming the good news or the wonders of God. As we're going to see in the rest of Acts 2, that these wonders are referring to the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. The things they're talking about are the events that have transpired over the past couple years. The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they're announcing it to all these people. Again, there wasn't worldwide news at this point. People haven't heard much about Jesus. And suddenly you have these people announcing and proclaiming about the life, death, and resurrection of this person named Jesus of Nazareth. The wonders of God. So to review, to kind of get us back up to this point, we've seen a couple of things happen that are all conveniently alliterated. Um, we have this promise in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where God promises that he's going to fill them with power so that they can be witnesses. Then you see 10 days, they got down on their knees and they prayed. They pestered God. They didn't just sit back and wait for God to answer his own promise. They got down on their knees and they said, God, fulfill your promise in our time. God, fulfill your promise. Send us your spirit. Give us that kind of power. Then in Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, we see them filled with power. And now now they're speaking what in other languages that the Spirit enabled them. What are they talking about? They're proclaiming the gospel. What did Jesus say in Acts chapter 1 verse 8? He said, I will give you power so that you can be my witnesses. And that's what they're doing here. The first thing from their lips, the first thing the Spirit of God enables the church to do is to proclaim the gospel. But the question for us is why start there? Of all the things the Spirit could have enabled the church to do, why enable the church on this day of Pentecost to speak in other languages the wonders of God, the gospel? The Spirit could have enabled them to do a lot of things, maybe to get some clarity around their mission, vision, and values. The Spirit could have enabled them to start a poverty alleviation ministry or maybe a celebrate recovery program. The Spirit could have enabled them to walk into the Jerusalem County Hospital and start healing and performing all kinds of wonders there, which they would do later. The Spirit could have enabled them to build a beautiful church building. Maybe that, you know, there's times in the Old Testament where the Spirit of God enabled people with the gift of craftsmanship. Maybe the Spirit could have enabled them to start a killer youth or young adults ministry that everybody was coming to from Jerusalem. The Spirit could have enabled them to start a next, or the next great worship band. Or the Spirit could have enabled them to start a multi-million dollar capital campaign to make sure they got the church started right. But what do we see the Spirit do instead? It's not that all these things are bad. And it's not many of these things the church would end up doing. But why start here? Why is the first thing the Spirit enables the church to do is to share the gospel? Here's what I think. That I think a church with nothing but the gospel has everything that it needs. 
And a church with everything but the gospel ultimately has nothing that it needs. A church with nothing but the gospel has everything that it needs. And I think right off the bat, the Spirit was saying, it's ultimately not going to be about all these other things. This is the center. This is what we do. This is what we're about. We can be a great church, for example. They could have been a great church that did a dozen or a thousand good things all throughout Jerusalem and Samaria. But if they didn't have any good news to go with that, eventually they were going to fade to nothing. We would not be here today unless there is some good news with that. The gospel is the why behind every single what that the church does. And if we begin to lose our why, our purpose, the very center of what we do, it's not long before we start to die. And when you look at church history, and when you see churches start to die, especially over the past hundred years, what's often happened is they've lost track of the gospel, and they've made their church about something else. And they've started to fall apart and slowly fade to nothing. But you see this even happen in the Bible. Paul, at one point, had shared and started all these churches in this region called Galatia. And he wrote them a, le- wrote them a letter that we call Galatians today. But in the letter, he is, he is fighting mad. He is angry because what has happened is they've walked away from the gospel. And he says it this way. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which he says is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Galatia was in danger already. He had just started this church, and the thing he's most worried about is not leadership or anything else, but you guys are walking away from the gospel. You forgot the very thing that gives you life, the very thing that got you started, the thing upon which you stand, is which, and which is what he writes in 1 Corinthians. He says this to a church in Corinth, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. And in a minute, he's going to say that this is of first importance because he knows that if these churches start wandering away from the gospel early, they're never going to come back. And it won't be long before they disappear into nothing. When churches lose track of the gospel, they lose their center. Um, Anybody know who this guy is? Confidence? Confidence. Martin Luther? Yes. Not the same as Martin Luther King Jr. I found that out in fifth grade. I tried to read a biography about Martin Luther and I thought it was about Martin Luther King Jr., and I just kept waiting for the I Have a Dream speech. It never came. Um, and then eventually I was corrected by my teacher, this is not the same guy. Martin Luther, after whom Martin Luther King Jr. is named, 501 years ago, we're actually just past the 500th anniversary of this guy, the church was falling off the deep end. The church at the time was, was telling people that they could buy their forgiveness. They were telling people that if you do these acts, that somehow God might have mercy on you if you're good enough, if you fulfill this checklist, if you do these things. And Luther comes along, he's been reading Romans, and he's like, what? This isn't the gospel. What is this? What happened to the gospel here? And so what he gets back to is he returns to the gospel. And what you see is this huge movement called the Reformation, which is meant to reform the church that affects us even to this day. It was a gospel movement. It was somebody trying to get back to the gospel that had been lost and replaced. Because again, a church with everything but the gospel has nothing that it needs. A church with everything but the gospel has nothing that it needs. It doesn't matter how much our church does, ultimately, if we have no good news to say nothing to say and nothing to give. That's why the first thing the church does is proclaim the good news of God. So the question is, what is the gospel? What's the good news? What do we have to say? We're going to go forward. This is a longer text. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verse 14 through 36. And this is what Peter preaches. And you can think of him kind of summing up maybe what all the things they were talking about when they were speaking in those different languages and all those different wonders. 
And it says this, and he, there's kind of a, there's three parts to this where he first, he talks about what's happening, then he talks about the gospel, and then he talks about how to respond. And it says this, then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and bills of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he continues into the sermon. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I'll not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body, my body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And again, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. This is one of 19 sermons or speeches that are given throughout the book of Acts. Um, Peter actually gives eight of them. And what, we can, what we're pretty certain of is that this was not like a transcript of what he preached that day. He didn't like turn in his manuscript to Luke and be like, here's what I had to say on Pentecost. Like, why don't you go ahead and write this down? What, he prob- what we have here is probably an inspired summary of the main ideas of the things that he spoke when he spoke this sermon. That he's saying, here's the gist of it. Here's what I ended up saying on the day of Pentecost. And here's a sense of what was spoken on that day. For example, if this was the entire sermon, it would be only three minutes long, which I'm sure some of you would prefer. But that's the, that's, you know, this is probably an inspired summary when it comes to his sermon. And so there are kind of three parts to this, as I mentioned, as we were going through. One is that you see first, he's explaining what happens. He's explaining the fact that they, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and that this is predicted by, by Joel. Then he proclaims the gospel which he spends the majority of his sermon on. And then finally, which is the part we didn't get into yet, he begins to apply it to everyday life. And I want to walk through those parts, and then we're going to really hone in on part two. But in part one, he begins to explain the Holy Spirit. And first, so he says this, he says, these people are not drunk, as you suppose. Again, because that's what they're accusing them of. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Every single time I read this, I always think Peter has obviously not been here at the St. Patrick's Day Parade, because I have known people who have been drunk at nine in the morning. Um, and, but nonetheless, they're not drunk. He says, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all people. And that image of pour out is the image of, a, of a, like a rainstorm or a mighty tropical storm pouring out rain on something. I will pour out my spirit on all people 
people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. So it'll be across genders. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. It's going to be across generations. Even on my servants, both men and women, it's going to be across socioeconomic divides. I'm going to pour out my spirit on those days and they'll prophesy. And he goes on to talk about some other signs of this that we don't have time to unpack today. But essentially what Peter's doing here is people have now seen, all, they've been filled with power. They're speaking in these other languages and people are like, what does this mean? And he's saying this. He's like, you know when you go to synagogue and you sit around and you, you listen to a scroll is open and sometimes you guys read from Joel and you guys will read the scroll from Joel in your synagogue and you'll read that and every couple of years you hit it again. And sometimes you hear about this scene where God says in the last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit. He's like, that day is today. That's being fulfilled now. Today is the day when the spirit is being poured out. That that vision seen by Joel is now beginning to unfold here, right in your midst. And the first thing that he does, though, is instead of pointing people back to, isn't that cool that we're speaking in other languages? Isn't it cool all these things we're doing? The first thing that he does, though, is he points them forward to the gospel. This crowd is gathered around him. And the first thing he does, he doesn't get the healing. He doesn't start casting out demons. The first thing he does, he starts proclaiming the gospel. And throughout this, you hear both eyewitness accounts of what they have seen with their own eyes, but you also see the witness of the Old Testament. You see these Psalms are put in there. There's these Old Testament passages put in there. And he's saying all of this is pointing us forward to the gospel. And whenever the gospel is preached in the book of Acts and it's preached multiple times, it always sounds a little bit different depending on who's being spoken to. For example, when Paul is in Athens and he's speaking to the philosophers and all the people there, he speaks the gospel a little bit differently. When Peter is before a judge and jury, he's preaching the gospel a little bit differently. When Stephen is about to be stoned, he preaches the gospel a little bit differently. But no matter when somebody is preaching the gospel, it always has these same three ingredients, which you've been through, if you've been through our on-ramp or if you've been here a while, you could probably name them. But there are always three ingredients to the gospel. And we're actually going to look for these in this sermon. Is that first of all, it's God-coordinated. The second thing is that it's Jesus-centered. And finally, it's life-changing. If your gospel message is missing these three things, it's probably something less than the gospel. So let's actually start, though, with Jesus-centered. The gospel centers on Jesus. If the gospel is the center of the church, Jesus is at the center of the gospel. The good news is not just the teachings of Jesus. It's not just some things he said. The good news is what he did, his life, his death, and his resurrection. The, a real person named Jesus of Nazareth. And listen to where Peter starts his sermon. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth. The first words out of his mouth there, when he's really getting into his sermon, is this idea of Jesus. He starts there with the person of Jesus. That Jesus lived this life that was shown by God through miracles, wonders, and signs that he was from someplace else, which God was doing among them. And then he was, Jesus was handed over ultimately to death where he was put to death by wicked men and he was nailed to a cross. That he lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. But then what, what does it say? It says, but God... One of the greatest phrases in the Bible. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. Then he rose again victoriously from the grave in anticipation and as a preview of what was coming for the rest of us. And so we see life, we see death, we see resurrection. Here he doesn't focus on Jesus' teachings, although there's plenty of room for that. We're going to talk about that in the coming weeks. But we see where it starts with the gospel is what Jesus has done. He talks about it again in Acts chapter 2, verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life. And now Jesus is sat, or seated at the right hand of the Father. 
And so we see right at the center of the gospel is this person of Jesus Christ, who's now been exalted to Lord over all creation. In other words, again, the gospel is not just something Jesus said, it's everything that he did. Often there's this misconception about Jesus that he's just a great teacher, and that he's got a lot of great things that he said that we can live our lives by. Um, and uh, he's kind of in the same line as maybe Buddha or Confucius or somebody like that, a great moral teacher. The reality is that's not what he said about himself, and that's not what everybody said about him. And when we get the Gospels, the emphasis in the Gospels is never on his teachings, which are important and shape our lives. The emphasis is on the fact that he lived, died, and rose again. If all we needed from Jesus was his teachings, we would just get a collection of his teachings. But what we get was his life, his death, and his resurrection. The gospel centers on Jesus. The second thing, though, is that it's God-coordinated. That the gospel doesn't start with you. The gospel isn't a bunch of things you need to do. Or the gospel isn't because you're so lovable that God wanted to do something for you. The gospel says, actually, we were enemies. We were ungodly. We were dead in our sins. We were under a punishment of the wages of sin. It says the wages of sin is death. We were under all these things. But God, what, in his love for us, did something about it. God is the subject of the gospel sentence. The gospel was God's idea, not ours. And we hear this all over this sermon. Listen to Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 24. It says over and over that God is the one doing these things. He's, a, he's accrediting our, uh, he's showing who Jesus is through miracles and wonders. Um, he, it was according to his deliberate plan and foreknowledge that Jesus was nailed to a tree. It was God who raised him from the dead. I want to go back to that deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Is that often, every 10 years, somebody will release a book that say Jesus died by accident. He was a zealot. He was this really incredible revolutionary. Rome didn't like him, so they put him to death. The reality is, though, that's not how Peter and everybody else saw it. They said, no, this was according to God's plan. Death wasn't an accident. Death was the plan from the very beginning. And if you know the story of Peter, you know even he had to be convinced of that. So the gospel, then, is not something, or let's go back on the next part, too. It says, God, again, has raised this Jesus to life. And we're all witnesses of it. And now he's exalted him to the right hand of God and poured out the Holy Spirit. That God is the one directing or orchestrating the whole thing. Another way to say this again is the gospel is not something you do. It's something that God has already done. Many of you come from a religious background where you thought of, you know, religion or getting to God as a bunch of things you had to do in order to get to God. Here's a checklist I have to fill out. Here's a moral standard I have to reach before God can accept me and love me. And some of you are bringing that baggage in here today. You're afraid that what you were going to hear today is more of that on your life. The good news of the gospel is that God said, you guys were already messed up. You were already broken. There was nothing you could do, but I've come the whole way for you. Yes, there are things you can do in response. Yes, there's a whole now life that we're invited into, but it doesn't start there. It starts with the fact that there is nothing we can do and God did it all. So we see that it's Jesus-centered, it's God-coordinated, and finally, it's life-changing. In order to get into the life-changing part, we have to kind of dip into the third part of his sermon where he begins to talk about how to respond. But there's three things that we see about that it changes about our lives. The gospel gives us a new history, the gospel gives us a new ability, and the gospel gives us a new destiny. The first thing is that it gives us a new history. We see this here when, when they're cut to the heart and they're wondering, what do we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Everyone say forgiveness. Yes. Here's what forgiveness means. It means you have a new history. It means that when God looks at you, he does not stack your sins against you, but he looks at the history of Jesus Christ who lived the life you should have lived, and he says, that's your history now. He says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the first thing that you get in the gospel is a new history. Some of you are here today dragging your past with you. 
Some of you have lived your lives as defined by your past. When you think of yourself, you don't think of your name. You think of this terrible thing that you've done in your past. But God looks at that and he looks at you and he grants you forgiveness. He gives you a new history. He does not hold your history against you. He gives you a new one. The second thing that we see is that God gives us a new ability through the gift of the Holy Spirit. That God gives us a new ability through the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does a lot of incredible things in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit enables people to speak in other languages. The Holy Spirit enables people to to heal others. The Holy Spirit enables people to cast out demons. But one of the daily ways the Holy Spirit works in our lives is the Holy Spirit gives us power to overcome sin and the struggle against sin in our lives. Some of you, just as some of you are dragging in a history in here this morning, some of you are dragging in a struggle. You have something that you've been wrestling with for years. Maybe it's anger and rage and bitterness at someone. You can't overcome it. You feel like there's nothing you could do to get out of it. Some of you are carrying an addiction to alcohol or narcotics or, 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 or medicine or something else, and you're struggling to get out of that, and you feel like there's nothing you could do to get through that. Some of you are, are struggling with who knows what, but what God is saying is, I want to grant you a gift that's going to give you a new ability, a new power, that's going to enable you to change and to become a different person, a new history, a new ability, and a new destiny. Peter doesn't mention our new destiny directly here, but we see it all over the Bible when it talks about hope, that we have this hope of resurrection. He hints at it over and over as he talks about Jesus' own resurrection. But when Jesus rose from death, it wasn't just him being victorious over death. It was him being victorious over death so that we might be as well, so that death would no longer get the final word in our life. In Romans 6, this is one of the many ways it talks about this. It says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. A life that starts now and never ends, where death is not the period on our lives anymore. And so the gospel includes these three ingredients, and it changes our lives in these three ways. We see that the gospel is God-coordinated, it's Jesus-centered, it's life-changing. And you see it all over this. And I want you to look back at what you wrote down for the gospel. I, you know, if you wrote down this triangle, you got the ingredients, but what is it? You know, I don't see any like, yes, I got it. Like, but whatever, you know, you can grade yourself. You don't have to grade each other. It's just grade yourself. But I want you to say, are these three pieces there? When you look at what you wrote down for the gospel, is it something you do or is it something that God does? When you look at what you wrote down for the gospel, does it center on Jesus? Does it include his life, death, and resurrection, or is that missing completely? When you wrote down what you wrote down about the gospel, does it include anything actually good that changes your life? Does it include anything that makes a difference in the life of somebody who might be hearing? It doesn't have to include history, ability, and destiny. It can include a variety of other things as well. But does it include any good news that is life-changing? Do you know the gospel? What is it? Whenever I summarize the gospel, again, our professor never gave us an answer that day. And I think the reason he didn't give us an answer is because he wanted us to keep thinking about it. He wanted us to think about it until it was a burning passion in our hearts, where it was the first thing on our minds when we woke up, where it was the thing that we wanted to share without, like, share without anybody telling us to share it. And I think that's why he wanted us to get clarity around it. And where I've landed is this, and I'm constantly thinking through this again, but I think that the gospel is the good news that God, through the life, death, and resurrection, has opened up everyday life in his unending kingdom. The same kind of life Jesus lived for ordinary people like you and me. No matter what your past is, no matter what your future looked like, no matter what present struggle you have, God has opened up a radically new life with a new history, a new ability, and a new destiny through the faith in Jesus Christ. That's the best, that's the best thing I can think of when I come to the good news. So the question then is, how do we respond? And that's what Peter talks about in part three of his sermon in the final part of my own. He says this in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 38. It says, when the people heard this, 
They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. In responding to the gospel, we see three more things here. This is what we do in response to what God has done. It says this, we believe, there's repentance, and there's baptism. Belief, repentance, and baptism. Um, we see those in these parts here. It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And throughout the scriptures, when you see people cut to the heart, what's happening there is that they've begun to believe the message. They've heard this news. They're beginning to believe it. They're beginning to believe that it's true. And it says that they responded, now what do we do? I'm believing this. What's next? And it says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Repentance is just an old word that means to change your mind, to turn around, to turn away from one life, to turn to a new life, to say no to one way of living, to say yes to another way of living, to say no to trusting in yourself and to saying yes to trusting in Jesus for your life and your salvation. And then finally, it says, seal that up with baptism. It says, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. In baptism, all that is, is it's a picture of what it looks like to repent and believe. It's a picture of what it looks like to start and to be initiated into something we call discipleship. It's publicly identifying with Jesus as Lord. Believe, repent, and be baptized. Now, I know that, again, I went through a lot in this sermon, but at this point, I just want to talk quickly about something called the on-ramp. What we talk about in our discipleship on-ramp, which is four weeks that we do, and I have Sam come up and start playing. What we do in the on-ramp is we have four weeks in October. We used to do this on Saturdays, but now we're going to do it on Sundays during second service, where we walk you through some of the basics of the faith, and it's good for Christians and non-Christians. For example, if you struggle to answer the question, what is the gospel? Come on October 7th. It's going to be during second service. We're going to dismiss you at the same time as the kids. We're going to go next door to 690, where we're going to talk about the simple gospel for 60 to 75 minutes. October 14th, we're going to talk about baptism, and you're going to have an opportunity to be baptized in November um, if that's something you want to do. And then we're going to talk about everyday discipleship, and then what does it look like to serve on a team. And I can't suggest more strongly that if you haven't done this, to do this. Um, We've had a lot of people in our church already go through this, and I would encourage you to try it. Um, and I was just, um, one of the things that happened to me this weekend or this past couple of weeks is my dad gave me a box. They're moving. And he gave me a box of my, my first mom's Bible study notes. Uh, my mom died when I was 11 years old. And I got a box of all these Bible study notes from about a decade worth of notes. And one of the things I saw in there is that she had note after note of going through things like this, of going through an on-ramp at Beaverton Christian Church, which is where we grew up. And those were formative in her life. Those were the things that helped her figure out what she was supposed to do next. And many women, who are, there's all these letters tucked into this box written by other women about my first mom. And they kept talking about how she was the godliest person they know. You want to know where it started? It started with stuff like this, going through this basic class that helped launch her into what was next for her. Um, And so again, that's going to be in October, and we're going to have an opportunity uh, for you to be part of that. So the second mark, again, of the Spirit-filled church, and the first thing the church does when they're filled with the Spirit is to proclaim the gospel. A Spirit-filled church is a a gospel-centered church. Without the gospel, ultimately, we'll fade to nothing. Again, the gospel is the good news that through the life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has opened up a radically new uh, life available in his kingdom for ordinary people like us. Some of you, again, are in here, and you're, you're in search of a new history. Some of you in here this morning are in search of a new ability. You need power to overcome something in your life. Some of you are in search of a new destiny. Somebody in your life has died recently, whether it's from sickness or something else, or you're looking around and you're seeing all the suffering of the world and you're wondering, will this ever end? You need good news, or the good news of a new destiny. 
Um, I want to close out my sermon by giving you an opportunity to respond. Um, perhaps if this is for you. Why don't you go ahead and close your eyes and bow your heads just for a minute. I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Some of you are in here this morning. You don't know why you came, but you came and you've heard the gospel proclaimed. Good news about Jesus. Maybe for the first time or for the first time in a long time and you didn't respond last time. Some of you are in here this morning and you, you've, you believe the gospel once, but you've wandered away and you want to recommit this morning. Right now, in just these next few moments, I want to give you an opportunity to raise your hand, and then we're all going to pray something together. So if, you're, if you want to believe the gospel this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to decide that this morning. Now I want all of us to just pray together this prayer. And why don't you repeat after me? Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to live my life to die my death and to conquer death for all of us. I believe the message and I believe that through faith you are giving me a new history, a new ability and a new destiny. It starts right now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If that teaching moved you or left you with questions, let us know by sending a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast for a new teaching from us every single week.